Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I'm joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. Now, our lead story reveals yet again the false COVID-19 information that is being put out by the government. All of this, in my view, is designed to keep people in fear. For so, so long as people are fearful, they are more willing to surrender their freedom to government which ultimately means more power to the government, which ultimately means totalitarianism, which is what the progressive left seeks. It's their utopia. So here's a summary of the story. Now, when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, released new guidelines last month for mask wearing, it announced that, quote, less than 10%, end quote, of COVID-19 transmission was occurring outdoors. And of course, the echo chamber and the media repeated this statistic, and it quickly became the standard for describing the frequency of outdoor transmissions of COVID-19. But that number is grossly misleading. It appears to be based partly on misclassifications of some COVID transmissions that actually took place in enclosed spaces. I think there were some studies and reports done um, overseas at, at construction sites. So, but this, the 10% the benchmark, you know, according to, and this is, this is from a, uh, a virologist at the University of St. Andrews, says, quote, seems to be a huge exaggeration. In truth, the share of transmission that has occurred outdoors seems to be below 1%. It may, in fact, be below 0.1%, according to multiple epidemiologists. So the rare outdoor transmission that has occurred um, has happened almost universally in very crowded places or with uh, when somebody's involved in a close conversation. Now, in this article that, um, that I am uh, referencing here, uh, and I love this one, uh, this one particular quote, it says, saying that less than 10% of COVID transmission occurs outdoors is akin to saying that sharks attack fewer than 20,000 swimmers a year. Well, the actual worldwide number is around 150. So to say that there's been less than 20,000 swimmers attacked by sharks is in fact true, but of course it's very deceiving. The same way to say that, you know, less than 10% of uh, COVID transmissions occurred outside. Uh, technically it's true, but it's very dece deceiving when that number could be 1% or 0.01%. Uh, so once again, we have uh, the government and with the, uh, you know, the mainstream national media being the echo chamber, um, passing false information. And I wonder if Facebook, social media, all these other, you know, censors who like to censor our uh, speech when we're addressing these uh, COVID-19 fallacies will in fact uh, censor the government's speech with this fallacy. Because this is in fact, um, it's, it's more than an exaggeration. It's, a, it's an, in fact a, uh, a, a deception in my view. And it's all part and parcel with trying to rob all of you, all of us of our freedoms and for them to maintain control. David, welcome. Your thoughts on uh, this story seems to be par for the course for the government. Well, it does. And it, you know, it touches upon a deeper truth or <laughs> falsehood that um, modern society has come to um, really just ignore or corrupt. And that is, we have a hard time understanding the very thick line, it's not a fine line, the very thick line between what is legitimately science, and we've talked about this in the past, 
and what is public policy or what is even statistical analysis. Science in reality is very little more than measuring physical things, measuring their size, their, their weight, their speed, their whatever it may be. But even the statistical analysis around the measurements is not science, it's statistics. And we know as people who litigate in courts all the time that experts can manipulate statistics just about any way they want. You recall that we had a case where we were representing a client in a defamation action. She was being sued for defamation and they brought in this expert who, who created millions of dollars worth of damages out of thin air for the plaintiff. And of course, we kind of um, tore that asunder and um, ultimately defeated the, the lawsuit. Um, we then hired the same expert to create damages for a client of ours out of thin air. You know, this new theory of, of damages that, that economists can come up with. It's just statistics. It's just manipulating numbers the way, any way you want them to be. And so that's what Fauci and company have done, right? It's, it's not the science of infectious diseases, which just measures, you know, what the, the, the virus or the bacteria, um, in this case, a virus looks like, how big it is, what kind of spikes it has, uh, how many people it can infect in a given area, those kind of things. But the idea that Fauci can get up there or the CDC with a straight face and say, as you point out, um, you know, uh, going maskless in the outdoors um, is still going to, is going to uh, create less than 10,000 infections, right? Um, it, it's just silly, but people aren't thinking about what it is that the CDC can say responsibly vis-a-vis -vis science or statistical analysis or public policy risk assessment. You know, do we require people to wear masks and be socially distanced outdoors? The fascinating thing, if you look at the states that were the first to say no more masks, you could look at the states that didn't even require masks or social distancing. They simply told the public um, what the risks were and let the public decide what was reasonable as adults. And, and those were typically the flyover states, you know, the red, the red um, flyover states, we call them. But if you look at Texas, for example, Texas was one of the first states, as was Florida, but Texas early on started pulling back all these COVID restrictions and Biden came out and, and many others came out and attacked the Texas governor, you know, for, for being non-ascientific or anti-scientific and not following the science of the CDC. And he said, well, it's not science. It turns out that Texas did not have a reoccurrence of COVID-19 infections or hospitalizations or deaths. They're doing much better economically. The people are doing much better then all of the, um, the um, uh, Democrat-controlled states um, out there, and by the way, I think I said the red flyover states, the, the blue fly, the, no, they are the red flyover states. I always get red yeah. and blue. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Red is Republican, blue is, and why do you yeah. think? Because red is commie, right? For those of us of the age of the red scare, red simply 
is highly aligned with and identified with the Communist Party. Anyway. So it should so it should be identified with the uh, with the Democrats and the left because they are the communists. Yeah, I so can see I understand the, the confusion. The Republican colors ought to be red, white, and blue. Yeah. Right. And then and the and the uh, the the Democratic progressive colors should simply be something like black or I mean they like black so you know black is good um, or maybe pink or rainbow. It ought to be rainbow. That's what their colors ought to be. You know all the colors of the rainbow. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. I saw a, a meme the other day, kind of, um, you know, and, and this whole deal about, you know, the, the left is all about science and, you know, the conservatives ignore science, but of course, you know, as we have identified before the left, um, ignores biology <laughs> every, at every turn. And last time I checked biology was in fact a, a science but I saw a, uh, somebody posted up on Facebook, you know, all this nonsense about how you identify, right? You identify as something different than your, what your, you know, how you were born, your, you know, your own, your gender, biology and the likes. So somebody said, well, if somebody asked me, I'm going to say, I'm going to identify as somebody who was vaccinated. <laughs> so get around the, uh, you know, yeah. you want my vaccine password? Hey, I identify as somebody who was vaccinated. Let me in your store without a mask on. Right. So, uh, hey, you so know, I have, I have some interesting news. So as you know, and I'll tell our listeners, I'm a proud grandfather for the first time. So we just came off of the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, which is the celebration of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai to the Jewish people. And on the first day of Shavuot, which was Monday, my um, wonderful daughter-in-law and my firstborn son uh, gave birth to a baby boy. And so um, on the Jewish holy days, we don't drive or use, you know, electrical things, turn things on and off. So we had my, my daughter and I, my wife was in the hospital and spent the night with my son and daughter-in-law. So my daughter, who's here in town with us, she and I walked to the hospital about an hour away. And we get there. And of course, they're requiring um, mask and ID and signing things, which we don't do. We don't have the signing. We don't carry identification um, on these holy days. And we got there. They were pretty um, good about it. But um, they said, are you vaccinated? I said, I'm so vaccinated. Absolutely. We're vaccinated. And of course, I had in mind that I had my flu vaccine. <laughs> I've had my my chicken pox vaccine. I mean, everybody in the hospital is vaccinated, um, but they didn't much care. You still had to wear a mask and, you know, it was all the silliness and they only let two people in the elevators at a time because they can stand at opposite corners. <laughs> I mean, imagine, can you imagine how many tests, how many, how much science was done on determining how many people can be in an elevator wearing masks to prevent or to cause infections from COVID. It's just nonsense. And, and just for our listeners and viewers sake, you are out there in California. So you're in the, the epicenter of the nonsense, COVID-19, um, COVID-19 nonsense. So let's, uh, I wanna pick up with a well, new story. Let me, let me just throw something else in. I'm in California and you can't find gender-based bathrooms anymore. The genders on bathrooms have been removed on all the new building and new construction. Old buildings are allowed to keep the antiquated, you know, men and women. Um, but the new bathrooms all are gender free. And, and 
that's progress, apparently. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, again, so much for biology. So let's pick up with a, with a new story related uh, to the one we just discussed, but yet another lead story about COVID-19. You know, as our listeners and viewers may recall, uh, we recently did a podcast, it was last month, about the evidence showing that the Chinese virus, COVID-19, originated in a Wuhan lab. And for that, we were censored by Facebook. Um, they pulled our video off the, uh, off the uh, social media, our social media page. <laughs> and as we mentioned, uh, stay tuned for litigation over that. Well, um, yesterday, Fox News ran a story titled, um, House Intel Republicans say, quote, significant circumstantial evidence, end quote, of COVID Wuhan lab leak. Now, remember, we discussed, you know, we're lawyers, and so we talk about evidence all the time. We've discussed previously uh, direct versus circumstantial evidence. Uh, and just as a simple example, direct evidence that it is raining, again, as an example, uh, you could have a recipient or eyewitness who sees it raining and can then testify to what their observations were. Um, whereas for circumstantial evidence, you could prove the fact that it's raining when you have evidence of, you know, 10 people walking into your office with wet raincoats and wet umbrellas. Both are evidence. One is direct evidence. The other is circumstantial evidence. Both are admissible in a court of law. Both can be used to, uh, to prove an, an outcome. In fact, many, many cases, criminal cases with even a higher level of, of proof required beyond a reasonable doubt are proven by circumstantial evidence. You don't always often have a reliable eyewitness, right? Because even eyewitnesses can have, uh, can be unreliable for any number of reasons. They might have a um, they, they might have some motivation to lie or they might have some particular bias. Um, their observations might not have been as clear as they, you know, that uh, they may be. So, I mean, it's just, but it's nonetheless, it is all evidence and it's evidence of proof of a particular outcome. Now, here's a couple of things from this, from this story. It says Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee. And again, and remember, they're in the House Intelligence Committee. So this letter that they, they put out, this report that they put out was for public consumption. There's, a, there's no doubt a, uh, a likely backstory to all this um, information that is not available for public consumption because of its uh, security um, levels. And everybody on the House Intelligence Committee has the highest level of security um, under, the, uh, you know, under the law. And they say, so the House Intelligence Committee say there is significant circumstantial evidence that the COVID-19 outbreak stemmed from a leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology urging the federal government to put, quote, more pressure on China, unquote, to allow for a, quote, full, credible investigation into the source of the global pandemic. And they go on, to, the story goes on to report, and this is from, the, uh, from what the Republicans are saying, international efforts to discover the true source of the virus, however, have been stymied by a lack of cooperation with the People's Republic of China. Nevertheless, significant circumstantial evidence raises serious concerns that the COVID-19 outbreak may have been a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You know, as we mentioned um, in a, a prior podcast, and it's pretty common in, in courts of law, that if you have somebody that's either, you know, not disclosing evidence, you know, not uh, participating in discovery or, you know, withholding evidence, that there can be a presumption that the evidence that they're holding or that they destroyed um, is adverse to what their position is. That's a, that's a reasonable inference to draw. Courts of law allow you to draw that inference. You could draw a similar inference here. The very fact of, of the, the cover-up that they've been engaged in allows for an inference that there, that there is a possibility of some nefarious activity. 
And let me just uh, continue on a couple more points. And this is again from the Republicans, quote, history of research lab leaks resulting in the infections. This is, again, what the, the Republicans are pointing to as evidence is this history of research lab re- leaks. And the warning from U.S. diplomats in China as early as 2017 that the Wuhan lab was conducting dangerous research on coronavirus without following necessary safety protocols, risking the accidental outbreak of a pandemic. Republicans also pointed to public reports that several researchers in the Wuhan lab were sickened with COVID-19-like symptoms in fall 2019 and the Chinese military's involvement in the Wuhan lab. I mean, there's more in this story, but those are the points that we were, you know, we were making in our um, in our last uh, podcast that again prompted the uh, Facebook to uh, to censor us. And also, we pointed out the fact that uh, at the beginning of this outbreak, China shut down all the domestic flights from Wuhan, in and out of Wuhan, but left open their international flights. So you could have all these infected individuals flying out of Wuhan, landing in New York City, landing in Los Angeles, landing in Chicago, all the major. Um, you know, cities in the United States and really, you know, the epicenters of where this disease, particularly New York, um, the uh, where the disease has uh, has spread. So, again, I, I find it, uh, you know, it's interesting uh, that here you have the Republicans from the House Intelligence Committee, again, individuals who have a lot more information. They, they just put out here publicly what's available for public consumption um, of the circumstantial evidence, which could lead very reasonably um, to a conclusion, whether whether you want to you know use the more likely than not standard or beyond a reasonable doubt standard, I think it's at the beyond a reasonable doubt standard in my view, with the all the circumstantial evidence uh, involved, including the uh, the cover up by China, that the uh, that the virus originated from the the Wuhan lab, that the Chinese Republican Army was involved in it, and quite likely and and again an inference draw of that it's this is uh, may have well been part of their bio warfare um, program. So, David, turn to you. Well, I think you covered it really well. I mean, I would advise our listeners, go back and listen to the podcast that Facebook wiped out and you can heal still. It's off Facebook. You can get it on Rumble. You can listen to it on Spotify. and Right. So you can still get to it. And we covered exactly what the Republican report identifies as the circumstantial evidence. And But as Rob points out, they're clearly... Um, uh, have, they clearly have access to secret information that is not being released, which prompted that report that even we don't have. But we had enough evidence that something nefarious has occurred. And by nefarious, I mean that, and we discussed this, Rob and I, that clearly there's enough circumstantial evidence to establish the high likelihood that this disease emanated in the Wuhan lab. Now, whether or not that was an accident or part of a military operation to get this virus into the public domain and then out of China, and the evidence that Rob pointed out in our podcast was that flights within China out of Wuhan and travel was restricted, whereas international flights out of China by all these folks was not restricted by the Chinese government. And remember, the Chinese government is not the U.S. government as so-called systematically racist and terrible that the U.S. government is, according to the progressives. Uh, The Chinese government makes our government's worst failures 
pale in comparison. It is tyranny writ large. So if they're allowing certain flights and not allowing other flights, that's a telling factoid, as they say. So I just want to back up again for our listeners who are not lawyers. Rob's example of circumstantial evidence, because in this case, there certainly is a lot of the raincoats. And I noted in the last podcast that Facebook censored that, look, it, you could say, well, isn't it possible that a you know, fire sprinkler or a fire hydrant burst and all these people walking in with umbrellas and raincoats soaking wet we're really walking through a, a busted water pipe. And the answer is, as the answer is to many conspiratorialists who kind of make up conspiracies. Conspiracy is a legitimate thing if you have circumstantial evidence or direct evidence. Um, but you'll have people say, well, isn't it possible that the government did this or so-and-so is doing this? And the answer is, yes, it's possible, but like in science and theorizing, um, logic dictates Occam's razor should prevail, meaning the simplest explanation for the evidence is typically the best explanation. Not always, but that is a sound bet. And so if people are walking in soaking wet with raincoats and umbrellas, the best explanation is it's raining outside. Now, it might be that it's not, it might be that broken fire hydrant, but that's not a very good explanation because then you'd have to explain, well, how did people know to bring the umbrellas and the fire hydrant? Maybe they listened to the news. Maybe it was reported. You have to start building speculation upon speculation. The simple conclusion from that circumstantial evidence is that it's raining. Now, in terms of the inference, keep in mind that if China was correct, and that this was somehow a leap from animals to the human species, even though, as the Republican report points out, they haven't identified which animal. They haven't established, as it were, the biology of infectious diseases to explain exactly which animal and how it jumped species, because that's not a simple thing for some viruses. I'm not a virologist and I'm not a biologist, so I'm not going to opine on that. But the fact that the Chinese government prevented um, any health organization, including the very um, friendly World Health Organization from going in and really doing an investigation is incredibly suggestive. And as Rob pointed out, even in a court of law, if you destroy evidence or hide evidence, um, there is a presumption or an inference that if the evidence could have been found, but for your hiding it or destroying it, it would have been evidence to which would have tended to show your guilt or liability, meaning adverse to your interest. Otherwise, you would have opened it up and exposed it. And that's logical. Indeed, in court, if you destroy evidence, even recklessly, even in some cases negligently, the court will impose an inference. They will actually tell the jury, you should assume by the fact that this evidence was destroyed 
that the party who did the destruction or who did the losing of the evidence, that part, the evidence would have pointed to that party's guilt or liability, liability in a civil case, guilt in a criminal case. So that inference is a strong logical inference and it's imposed by the courts on those bad actors who decide to destroy evidence rather than try to deal with the reality in front of them. And so that's what we have with this Wuhan lab. And the evidence, the, the fact that the, Rob pointed out, there's even more circumstantial evidence for those of us in the public because this intelligence committee group of Republicans, granted the Democrats did not sign on. So why didn't the, let me just finish the thought. So the fact that the Republicans who have access to top secret information have released this report. Now listen for the Democrats. Are we hearing the Democrats yell and scream in the news media that the report is full of lies? Are we hearing the Democrats scream that the intelligence upon which that the top secret intelligence upon which that report might be based in part does not say what the Republicans say it is? We're not hearing any of that. And that's what you would have expected. So the, the silence by the Democrats, even though they didn't sign on, and the fact that the Republicans on that committee have access to high level intelligence that we don't, suggests strongly that there's something nefarious going on, not just an accident. And the reason I say that is because one of the elements of this report, and we talked about this in the podcast that was censored, is that there is evidence that the Chinese military was doing what I believe is called the change of function research, which- Gain, right? gain of function, gain I'm of sorry. function, gain of function. Uh, yeah, gain of function, excuse me. And, and again, I'm not a virologist or scientist, so I'm not going to biologist, so I'm not going to opine, but apparently what that means is you can take um, viruses and actually have them do things they wouldn't in nature do. And what that does apparently is help weaponize viruses. It can also be used for good things, but it's a big part of weaponizing viruses so that they spread faster and more viciously or what have you. Now, the other element to this is that there were US corporations and maybe even government agencies involved in a funding some of that research because that gain of function is either not permitted at all in the United States or somehow there are very, very uh, major restrictions on what kind of labs, what kind of um, conditions and top secret clearances can do that kind of research. So there's a lot of elements to this story that we simply don't yet know, but the evidence is strong. Now I want to just kind of touch upon a different um, subject matter that spins off of this. And Rob, uh, I'll let you decide how far we want to take it on today's podcast. But the question is, is why are the Democrats so gung-ho in protecting the Chinese government from this allegation? Because if you mention the Wuhan lab, Facebook takes you off the air. You're called a racist. You're, you're told that you're the reason why um, 
poor Chinese Americans are being attacked or Asian Americans are being attacked on the streets of the United States, notwithstanding the fact that the people doing the attacks in, on the Asians in this country tend to be taking place in the inner cities and by minorities, African-Americans and Latinos against the Chinese, not people like me who are making this accusation. And I doubt those inner city people are listening to people like me. Why, why is the left, the progressive, why are they so gung-ho on protecting China? And I would theorize as follows, that by even identifying a locus, a place where this occurred, Wuhan, China, and linking it to the Chinese government, you have somehow bought into systemic racism, right? That everything boils down to race. That's what critical race theory is. Critical race theory, by the way, for all of you, and we're starting to hear a lot about critical race theory. They're teaching it at the universities, they're teaching it at high schools, even elementary schools, even preschools, is a replacement by the hardcore left for Marxist theory, where everything was about capitalism, not racism. Everything was about wealth, that everything could be boiled down. Every human condition, every problem that society faces could be boiled down to the wealthy, the capitalist versus the proletariat, the poor and the downtrodden and even the middle class. That was the narrative. Now it's shifting. Well, that kind of um, Marxist theory still holds true for critical race theory. The new central trigger, the fulcrum of every human problem, every human failure, every hu part of human condition is now race and one's position. Either you're a racist or you're an anti-racist as a racist, meaning you see everything, even as a so-called anti-racist, in racial terms. Uh, our good friend Annie McCarthy calls it racialism, where everything becomes, you know, colored by race. Um, you know, and the, the, the recent story of the Chicago mayor, what's her name? Uh, Lightfoot, right? She's got an American Indian last name. She's part American Indian, part African and she came out her and she's admitted it that she's no longer going to grant interviews to anyone not of color and a, a latino journalist made this public because he got a he was granted an interview and found out about this and he told her i'm not going to do this interview unless you terminate your policy your racist policy of only granting people of color like me an interview and she said no i'm going to continue that that's her theory that only people of color get a right to interview her because otherwise it's buying into white privilege you know that's that's the mantra left so i was you know i heard that story and i was like well so uh wolf blitzer at cnn and all the other you know white uh, reporters at cnn they all should just quit because they're obviously there because of white privilege right and they're obviously you know racist because they're white and they work for CNN. So, hey, just quit, Wolf, Brit Wolf Blitzer. You're uh, you're apparently a racist, according to the Chicago mayor. So why don't you just uh, end your, ra your systemic racism over there at CNN 
and uh, and walk away from your job right now. I, you know, it's it's very it's it's very confusing to me their their protection of China. Um, I think the I think the Biden administration and family is in in China's hip pocket. That's a that might be a separate issue. I think part of this is this whole leftist notion of globalism, right? You can't just you know we're all it it it's almost like to say that China did something nefarious. Um, would somehow elevate the U.S.'s position globally vis-a-vis China. And it's, it, it's kind of a weird, uh, you know, why they always want to defend, uh, you know, China and these, and these other countries who, you know, and, you know they're all about, so supposedly all about human rights, and there's no greater human rights violator than China out there. We always, we talked before about the NBA and their embracing of, of China, yet, you know, they put their Black Lives Matter stuff on their basketball courts. Um, you you know th- this whole thing with climate change. My goodness, the biggest violator of of carbon emissions and everything is China, but they're getting away with it. And uh, I just I don't know. It, it's confounding to me. But at the end of the day, all of this left wing progressive stuff is confounding to me because it doesn't make any sense. You know, Michael Savage, that that uh, you know uh, he was a radio host, famously said that liberalism is a mental disorder, and I I'm. I firmly believe that that's probably true, but I think there's an evil component to it as well. But yeah, I just, I, I can't, I can't explain it. I don't know. I can't explain half the things that they do. I think there's a, there's in part a kind of at least superficial slash simple answer. And that seems to be that anytime you have a regime or an ideology that is anti-Western, the progressives embrace it. We yeah. saw that in the turn of the 20th century with the embrace by the hardcore progressives of that time of anarchy. We saw it with the embrace of Stalinism and, and Marxism, and then the Soviet Union, where the left denied the fact that the Soviet Union was seriously trying to send um, agents, influence agents into the US government, into US society, um, it turns out that all of that was true when the Soviet Union fell and a lot of the documents um, were made public. We saw that much of the, many of the targets of McCarthyism were in fact um, Soviet agents. Um, we've seen it with the embrace by the hardcore progressives of Sharia and jihadism. You know, it's all just a, um, an ex- you know, uh, corruption of poor Islam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And now we see it with China. Um, It's interesting that um, they identified Putin as the great evil Russian empire after Obama told uh, Mitt Romney that of course it's not, Russia's not our main enemy. Um, But I believe that became the case because they actually thought that Putin and Russia like Donald Trump, which of course turned out to be false as well. Uh, you know, Putin and Russia are clearly enemies of the United States, but China being a, an enemy of the United States is a much more powerful. Russia compared to China is nothing. The only thing Russia has are their old uh, stockpile of nuclear weapons. Um, yeah, they have hackers and they have biological weapons, but compared to China, and their hackers and their biological weapons and their nuclear weapons and their ability to to, um, reach out into the world and cause problems, 
doesn't it, it's light years ahead of where Russia is today. Yeah, I, you know, you're, I think your uh, your theory, I guess, is a war of uh, really a rejection of Western a rejection of Western civilization, which we know the left does. Which ultimately, what is that, right? It's a rejection of Judeo-Christian values, right? And so th that's that's probably the best explanation of all this. The whole Black Lives Matter movement is is a rejection of Western civilization, Judeo-Christian values. When you look at what they actually stand for, and they use, you know, the the uh, social racial uh, injustice as kind of a wedge issue to gain, you know, some sort of, uh, you know. Uh, foothold or a momentum, but really they're, they're an anti-Western civilization organization. They're anarchists, they're anti-American. And that's really the left, the progressive left. That's where they are. Um, you know, let me just say, I, and I, this might be a nice segue, but I think that's a, that's a hundred percent right. In other words, it's not just the, the rejection of Western civilization. So um, Western civilization's enemy is the progressive left's greatest ally, as it were. And that's really a rejection of Judeo-Christian sources of Western civilization. And you mentioned Black Lives Matter. That's a classic example. You have Black Lives Matter that claims, because um, I think it's a false claim, to be all about Black lives and, and, and systemic racism and how they, they need to fix this problem in the US. Um, but what do we see? when Hamas sends missiles into Israel and Israel um, responds by defending its citizens and Hamas sends its missiles from hospitals, from apartment buildings, from media buildings, from behind civilians. And as a result, civilians get killed both by Hamas's own weapons, the Palestinians own weapons and by Israeli retaliation. What happens? Well, in addition to the left and others, who stood out and said, we have 100% solidarity with the Palestinians, the Black Lives Matter leadership. And I would dare say that, what, why would Black Lives Matter stand with the Palestinians? What possible explanation? First of all, I guarantee you that there's not a person in the Black Lives Matter leadership that knows anything of any real substance about the Middle East, and the problem between the Palestinians and the Israelis. They don't know history. They don't know current geopolitical realities. They simply don't know. But because Israel as a Jewish nation represents the Jewish, the Judaism part of the Judeo-Christian civilization, Israel is the enemy. Israel is apartheid. Israel is part of systemic racism. Even though the Jews who lived in the Middle East have existed there a lot longer than the so-called Palestinian people, because you don't have to go back very far to, to, to realize that the Palestinian people never existed as a people until the mid 20th century. And the Jews had a much prior claim to the real estate there than the so-called Palestinian people did. And the Jews in the Muslim countries where the Palestinians lived, in the main, like Jordan, discriminated against the Sephardic Jews that had lived in Muslim countries since um, the destruction of the Second Temple, which occurred you know, in the 500 common era time period. 
So why would the Black Lives Matter not embrace the minority of the Jews um, in that part of the world? Because there are a lot more Muslims and even more Palestinians than Jews. And they live in Jordan and they live in other Muslim countries um, that haven't kicked them out because they tend to be violent and, and, and problematic. I think you hit the nail on the head. The Black Lives Matter is part of the anti-Western, anti-Judeo-Christian um, uh, bulwark is simply articulating that when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, and if you know if it was all about discrimination, as they always say, um, there's far, far less discrimination uh, in Israel against Arabs than there is against Jews in the Arab countries. I mean, the, the Jews and 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 many most of the Arab countries are practically non-citizens with no rights to to anything. Um, so if you if you want to if it's just pure discrimination, it's not even there's no comparison between these, uh, you know, these Arab uh, nations' uh, uh, treatment of, of the Jews that live in, the, in their, within their, you know, borders, as opposed to the Arabs who live within the borders, the, the, uh, the Muslims that live within the borders of, uh, of Israel. Uh, but let, me just, give, let me give just a personal and a, um, uh, story about that. In the early 20th century, right after the Stalinist revolution, my great-grandfather, Yaakov Benyamin, uh, left Russia um, with as much of the family that he could take uh, because Stalin was conscripting young Jewish boys out of yeshiva and putting them in the military and raising them in a very non-Jewish way and subjecting them to incredible harm. So he snuck out of Russia, made his way to New York in, again, the... 19 early late 19 teens early 1920s and there was not much of a jewish community there so he then moved to israel when it was still part of the um ottoman empire that had was after world war one had become part of the palestine mandate that the brits controlled and this was before there was a jewish country nation state uh, 1940, and he had lived there from the 1920s to 1940. He used to go to where the Western Wall is now, what we call the Kotel, and he used to pray every day and 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 learn biblical matters and what have you. And Arab youth in 1940 threw stones at his horse, his mule, his donkey, threw him off, and he was killed. And he was buried on the Mount of Olives. And that was in 1940. Israel becomes a nation state after the Arabs attacked when the UN voted to make Israel a country. The Arabs attacked. They lost the war, but they controlled the old city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Jews were not allowed to pray at the Western Wall. They were not allowed in that area at all. And my great-grandfather's um, resting place, his headstone was destroyed and used as stepping stones. Many were used as um, the, the, the flooring of latrines and what have you. And it was destroyed. And my grandfather and my father could not go there from 1948 until 1967 to repair his gravesite. 
It was abused like all the great Jewish grave sites on the Mount of Olives. It wasn't until Israel recaptured the old city and the Mount of Olives in 1967 during the Six Day War that my grandfather and my father, God rest their souls, did a pilgrimage to the Mount of Olives, replaced the headstone. And when um, I was there with my wife, we used to visit that and they had found the destroyed headstone and placed it next to the grave site. From 1967 till today, Muslims are allowed to live and travel and be in Jerusalem. There are even Arab Israeli citizens that live and travel there. Muslims, Palestinians are allowed when peaceful to go to the um, Mount, to the, the Holy Temple site where they claim the um, uh, Muhammad um, ascended to heaven at Al-Aqsa Mosque. And they're allowed to pray there. Of course, they do so oftentimes violently and attacking Jews. But there has never been a restriction on the religious rights and the travel rights of peaceful Palestinians or Arab Israelis, to be sure. Whereas when the Muslims, when Jordan controlled that area, Jews were not allowed there. By the way, if you rob, forget me, I'm a Jew. I can't even probably go into Saudi Arabia. But if you go, do you think you're allowed to go to Mecca? No, yeah. non-Muslims are not allowed to go to Mecca. You go to Medina, you can go to other locations, but you're not allowed into their holy city because you're an infidel. They impose that restriction because it's part of Sharia. Now, what about that is not discriminatory, right? But again, the left and the progressives don't want to understand history, they don't want to understand uh, the religious extremism from that side that hates Western civilization. All they want to do is talk about religious extremism from the Judeo-Christian side, right? There's no equanimity about any of this stuff. Yeah, just as a, another uh, personal, I guess, anecdote story, as it were. You know, I was in the, the Marines 13 years in the first Gulf War as an infantry officer. I was with the 4th Marine Expeditionary Brigade. We were the Amphibious task force that was set out. We spent, uh, you know, we we spent a lot of time in the uh, Persian Gulf on occasion because we were out there for nine months out at sea. So the ships at occasion had to come into ports, uh, in the ports of the uh, of you know the countries there that that were friendly to the United States, as it were, were you know Arab uh, Arab countries. Um, but we were told the Marines were told that when we when the when the ships pulled into port to do some refitting or whatever uh, maintenance that needed to be done, and the Marines or any of the sailors went ashore, if we had any religious medals, like a crucifix or a cross or something, we couldn't wear them ashore. We had to hide them. We could not, we could not display anything of the Christian faith in these countries that we were defending from Saddam Hussein's invasion uh, from the north. You know, and it's, when you think about how offensive that is, but that, and that's, that's reality. That's, uh, you know, that's the... That's the, you know, the, the, the political game they play with racism and discrimination and everything else. It's always just one way. It just goes one way. So let's, um, we're getting close to, uh, towards our end time here. We try to keep these to about an hour, but I want to just uh, touch upon this uh, one last story, kind of changing gears, and in some respect, not changing gears, but um, it's, a, uh, it's an article that was written by our good friend at National Review, Andy McCarthy. Um, it's titled, uh, Playing Politics with Terrorism, Merrick Garland's Absurd Warning. And it is an absurd warning. 
but it's it's more than absurd. It's quite frankly, it's dangerous when you think about that. This is from the Attorney General. Quick reminder to our listeners and viewers: Merrick Garland, if you remember, was uh, he was a, a federal judge at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the uh, for the D.C. Circuit, but he was Obama's Supreme Court nominee uh, to take the place of Justice Scalia when he passed. Um, the Senate, which was controlled by Republicans at the time, um, never gave him a hearing nor a vote, nor should they have. Um, so Merrick Garland uh, never made it to the uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court, but he was selected and is now um, Biden's attorney general. And so they, they were testifying before a Senate Appropriations Committee a hearing on domestic terrorism. And this is a, this is a quote from uh, Andy's article. He said, uh, Merrick Garland's claim that he has never in his long career in law enforcement and as a federal judge seen a, quote, more dangerous threat to democracy than the invasion of the Capitol, end quote, on January 6th. Um, and as Andy points out, he is best understood as just another spouter of the insidious narrative that currently drives democratic politics, and it's not for the first time. Um, he went on to point out that the AG last week, uh, that against uh, said last week, and that the top domestic extremist threat, the top domestic extremist threat comes from, quote, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, especially, specifically those who advocate for the superiority of the white race. And those statements were echoed um, by the, uh, the Secretary of the Homeland uh, Security. You know, it's, and, and one thing it's, you know, about this article, I mean, when you think about how absurd that is, I mean, there's, there's, uh, it's absurd on so many levels. Number one, uh, the January 6th, you know, and, and, you know, some people refer to it as a riot. The left refers to it as an insurrection. What an absurdity. And I refuse to refer to it as a riot. It was a protest that had some, that had uh, individuals involved in, that were protesters who broke the law. I mean, you want, you want riots? They won't call the, uh, you know, they, the left calls the, uh, the uh, Black Lives Matter riots all summer long as, you know, mainly peaceful demonstrations. No, those were riots. When you see cars burning in the street, people who are, who are you know, killed and, and the mayhem that occurred, those are riots. That didn't happen on January 6th, right? Even as we pointed out that, uh, you know, the, the story that the New York Times was peddling, that that Capitol Police officer was killed because he was, he was brutally beaten by a fire extinguisher, proved to be absolutely false. Uh, nobody, the only person who was killed in that whole demonstration on January 6th was a Trump supporter who was shot by a Capitol Police officer. And were there, you know, people who broke the law during that time? Certainly there were. But to say that this was the biggest threat to democracy and to somehow paint this as some sort of white supremacist attempt to overthrow the uh, the government, that is so absurd on its face and it's dangerous. But it but it goes along with their this whole narrative. It goes along with the things we've been talking about, the Black Lives Matter narrative. You know, I know uh, when people that were there at the, on the January 6th were visited by the FBI. Who's the, the Capitol Police were opening the doors and said, basically tell people to come on in. They went in, they talked to the police officers. They weren't the ones that went back into the, uh, you know, to the chambers, but yet they still had police officers showing up at their, uh, showing up at their door. They are, they are playing politics with terrorism in a way that is, that is so dangerous, right? So if you, if you're, basically if you're a Trump supporter, you're going to be labeled a, uh, you know, a domestic terrorist. 
Never mind. And, and again, re, referring back to Merrick Garland's uh, comment about this was the most dangerous thing that he's witnessed in all these years in law enforcement. Before being a federal judge, he worked for the Department of Justice for a long time. He was there during when Timothy McVeigh, you know, they blew up the, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, um, when all these, these jihadist terrorist attacks against U.S. interests, including, you know, the USS Cole and all the Americans that were killed during that terrorist attack, not to mention 9-11. And yet January 6th, is put on a, on a scale higher than those true terrorist attacks, and he considers that to be domestic terrorism? I mean, it's, it's an absurdity. You know, and, it's, and you know, I think, uh, what was the Obama term? They don't, they don't want to call it terrorism. They call it radical extremism, but that's their term for terrorism, right? Because terrorism is connected to jihadists, and they don't want to go anywhere near there. So they talk about it as, a, as a, you know, radical extremism, but they're referring to them as domestic terrorists. This is, this is more than absurd from the Attorney General making right. these claims that that January 6th protest was the greatest threat to our democracy in his entire you know, time as a, uh, in, in law enforcement as a federal judge, and that it somehow was motivated generally by white supremacy, and white supremacists are, are the most dangerous domestic terrorists. I mean, what, basically what they're saying is if you're a conservative Republican and you are Caucasian, you're a Trump supporter, you fit any of those categories, you somehow now are white supremacist and a domestic terrorist and a great threat uh, to America. I mean, this from, the, from an attorney general. I mean, this is just an, an absolutely absurd, absurd comment. Um, Andy was, uh, was absolutely correct. And, you know, we, Andy, we, Andy and, and David and I have not agreed with Andy on his description and characterization of the January 6th event. He, he describes it in his article in ways that I wouldn't describe it. Like I said, I think this was more uh, a, a protest um, that uh, some took, you know, some took liberties and, and broke the law and they're going to be prosecuted for it. I don't think anything that Donald Trump did on January 6th was, uh, was wrong and certainly not in, in, impeachable. Um, again, we part ways with, uh, with Andy on that uh, on that point, but this—the uh, idea that you have now the attorney general. Um, this is, you know, and, they, and, they, and they're having. I, I, you know, I've heard in the news they're going to start this January sixth, you know, commission. Right? They're going to investigate that. Watch out! Right? This is all just a shot across the bow threat to uh, conservatives, to conservative Republicans, to conservative Trump supporters. That uh, Big Brother has you in their sights. David, you know, I, I know we're running out of time, so I'm just going to kind of give our audience and and you some. Um, food for thought for the next podcast, possibly. And that is, number one, I agree with your statement. Trump did absolutely nothing wrong. And that's where we part with, with our good friend, Andy McCarthy, who I have an enormous amount of respect for, um, both when he was serving as a assistant U.S. attorney uh, with Giuliani as the U.S. attorney in <coughs> the Southern District of New York, um, and also as a pundit now, on mostly on legal matters. Um, but uh, what Trump did and what he said was perfectly within the confines of legitimate political speech. You can disagree with his view, Trump's view, that his vice president should have been loyal to him and refused to sign off on the certification of the election results and say, well, it's only, you know, it was only supposed to be um, clerical, it, it, there was no discretion allowed, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a debate to have, but you can have that debate and not be called an insurrectionist or an impeachable president. The second point I'd make is that you can um, certainly say that white supremacists 
and white supremacism is a legitimate terrorist, domestic terrorist threat in the United States. However, you have to keep it in context. The number of white supremacists um, in this country is small. The number of white supremacists who take a violent approach to their ideology is tiny. Now, are they among that tiny group? Are there a lesser group that's very dangerous? Yes. You know, you have the crazies like Timothy McVeigh, and I don't know that he was a white supremacist. Um, yeah, I, I would characterize him as an anti-government. Right, anti-government. And so you have that group too. So you have the anti-government, you have the white supremacists, but that number is very, very small. Are they dangerous? Yes. Should the FBI be surveilling them and doing whatever they can do legally to um, interject uh, them, or uh, not interject them, but to intercede and to stop their criminal behavior or to prosecute their criminal behavior once it's committed? Absolutely, yes. But you can't make the leap from that to what took place on January 6th, as Rob pointed out, and call that an insurrection. First of all, an insurrection means by definition that you're trying to um, tear down the government. Um, that's what an insurrection is. It's a rebellion. And um, that's not what the vast majority of people are doing. 99% of the people at that protest, even the ones who went in and trespassed on the Capitol uh, building, um, were not there to overthrow the government or stop government processes. They were there to protest what they saw as an four-year-plus um, concerted effort to destroy Donald Trump and his presidency and the election process, um, which was a legitimate political position to maintain, and it's one that I embrace. Um, the fact that certain of that group trespassed or went in, again, is not an insurrection. It's a demonstration where a small number, relatively small number of people, um, got you know, a little out of control. And then there are some who got very much out of control and there was some smaller subgroup that went there for nothing but the purpose of causing trouble. But that was a tiny little group and they didn't expect to, you know, have an overthrow of the government. Even the small violent group, they were just trying to be violent. They were trying to disrupt things, but they knew that Biden was going to be certified. They were just, as it were, exercising um, uh, their First Amendment rights in an illegal way by being violent and demonstrating. But that was a tiny subgroup. Um, for, for the um, attorney general of this country to make the statement that he did, as Rob pointed out, and as Annie McCarthy probably points out, goes beyond absurd because it, it, it points to the very corruption of public discourse by elected officials. If they want to make the claim that Donald Trump was corrupting our system by claiming that um, the Democrats and the, especially the Obama administration and the Hillary Clinton candidacy campaign um, stole the election from him was somehow an insurrection, then what I can tell you is that Garland's statements and Biden's statements and Pelosi's statements are of the same order, if not more so, because they have even less factual basis in reality 
than Donald Trump's statement, which I believe has a great deal of um, uh, factual reality. Um, when, a, when elected officials take the position um, that um, a vast part of this country operates under a rebellious or treasonous or insurrectionist ideology when that is not true. And by the way, as Andy points out, how do we know that's not true? Look at all of the criminal indictments and, 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 and arrests that have been taking place and the, and the um, charges that are being laid. They're all about trespass or disrupting, you know, the public government operation. I mean, they're they're benign. And even when they try to turn them into felonies, they're still benign. They're not actually charging them with insurrection or treason or anything else or violent crimes because the vast, vast majority of these folks were not engaged in violent crimes. And in fact, we get calls all the time, Rob does and I do, um, from individuals who either were arrested or being confronted by the FBI because they've been identified as being there. The FBI is interviewing and even charging folks with crimes like trespass and the like and generating felonies for people who literally would just hit the demonstration, might have walked to the Capitol building and either did or didn't take a step on Capitol building property. Or when the police officers opened the door and let people into the Capitol building, they went in, but they weren't being violent um, or being charged with criminal acts. Yeah, and you know, to your point, there's been no, uh, there's not one homicide charge, right? There's nobody was, because nobody was, was, uh, was unlawfully killed by any of the protesters. Um, I, I think I saw somewhere there was only, they found only one weapon on one person. It was probably concealed carrying. Right, so much for an insurrection. And, and this is a group of people who are no doubt Second Amendment supporters and probably have plenty, plenty of weapons, but there were no weapons at the Capitol. This was an insurrection. It's absurd to say so. But again, it goes, before, it goes beyond absurdity because these, these comments, uh, you know, this testimony is, uh, was measured and it was purposeful, right? And you know that the, that the left has a nefarious objective for all of this and for the, the commission that they're going to be coming out with this January 6th commission and keep peddling these falsehoods. And that's the problem, right? This isn't just some benign uh, polemics. They have a nefarious objective for all this. And, and let's, uh, you know, just gird your loins and get ready for the next wave of, uh, you know, of attacks on, on our fundamental freedoms. If you're a conservative, if you, you know, a Trump supporter, or just, uh, you know, they, they've got something brewing. Um, there's a reason why they're setting this all up uh, and they're doing it with the, you know, the attorney general, these comments. So um, let's, uh, I, this is, uh, I think that's a, a wrap for us today. Unfortunately, this is all the time that we have. We uh, uh, we didn't even get to some of the topics that we wanted to discuss, but we'll get to those uh, next time. And as always, we look forward to our next um, conversation. We thank all of you for joining us. As you know, our video casts are posted on Rumble and YouTube channels, and our podcasts are posted on Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the content, please follow us and uh, please spread the word. And again, thank you uh, for for watching or listening as it may be. And uh, may God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen.